Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. Hi, folks. I am here, lucky enough to be here with Dory Clark, who's a marketing and strategy consultant, and she's a colleague of mine at the Harvard Business Review. She also writes for Entrepreneur and Forbes. She consults and speaks to a bunch of different clients, Google, the World Bank, Microsoft, Morgan Stanley. In other words, we're really lucky to have her here with us for a few moments. She wrote the standout book, Stand Out, How to Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It. Uh, It's a smart book. It's filled with really great and interesting anecdotes. Uh, It's it's uh, it's also a book that's so uh, practically written. It's it's interesting and it's practical, which is sort of the uh, the gold star for any any good book that you want to actually use. So, Dory, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, Peter. Thank you. It's a it's always a pleasure to get to talk with you. I should also say Dory is a friend of mine, and that makes this all the more fun. Uh, Dory, what's the big idea of Standout? Why did you write the book? So I wrote the book because we live in an increasingly noisy, busy, frenetic world. And as I think many professionals have seen in their own lives, it's getting harder to stand out. It seems like there's a lot of competition. Um, Everybody's screaming at the top of their lungs. And I wanted to create a book that enabled smart, talented professionals, people who have good ideas, to actually get those ideas heard. I don't want the loudest voice to always win. I want the best ideas to win. And so I interviewed about 50 top thought leaders in a variety of different fields and essentially tried to reverse engineer the process by which they developed their ideas and came to prominence for them so that we could provide a a bit of a roadmap and help people with good ideas get them heard. Great. So why don't you give us just a very quick synopsis of the three parts of the book, which I think are really useful. So the book basically it's broken into three sections. The first one is about how do you develop your breakthrough idea? What what does that process even look like? Um, so I laid out some strategies that people can use to uh, to spark their own thinking and their own creativity. The second section is about building a following around your ideas. How do you go through that process of getting known and building a community so that uh, so that other people are actually talking about what you do? And then finally. Uh, I speak a bit about how do you make it sustainable? How do you start monetizing the ideas? Uh, How do you keep it going? That last section actually is going to be the focus of my next book, which I actually just signed a contract with HBR Press to write. So I'm pretty excited about expanding that out. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. So I'm very interested in these first two parts because they, they play off of each other in an interesting way, and I have a bunch of questions around it. Um, First, I want to play with something I read early on in the book, which is that you start, you talk about a man who became an international thought leader when he was laid off. He had a tremendous number of options because he was so well-respected, because he, he went out and he did what he needed to do in order to make his name a brand. And so when he was in a situation which he needed it, he had all of the support he needed. 
You also talk about a woman, I think her, Diane Mulcahy, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but she uh, worked, she ran investments for the Kaufman Foundation, and she exposed the venture capital world for the sort of high risk and poor returns, and she ended up being shunned by many. And I thought it was two interesting examples, because one is an example where your breakthrough idea becomes really big, and you become really big as a result. The other one is an example of someone who became really big, who had a huge impact, but in some ways was hurt by like the the spread of her idea. Uh, and I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts around that. Yeah, I I, I think it's really um, powerful that that you highlighted that piece because one of the themes that I wanted to to drive is that. Sometimes when you are a thought leader, that that means if you're doing it right, that you are a truth teller. And it's not always popular, honestly. But if you really want to make an impact professionally, if you really want to um, be able to to make a difference, you need to be able to speak truth to power. And in the case of, of Diane, uh, everybody else was kind of going along to get along. Uh, and she was one of the first people to uh, to actually speak out, backed by data, backed by evidence, to say, hey, wait a minute, there's a reason that the returns are not as good as everybody predicted they would be. Um, I think there there are compensatory benefits. Um, you know, she uh, she did make some enemies uh, from uh, from revealing this research, but she actually was able to really begin in some subtle but but noticeable ways to change the way uh, that things were reported and that the industry was doing business. Um, so she was she was making uh, making changes that were lasting and. Um, the the coverage actually was pretty substantial. So if you are willing to speak the truth about powerful things, you're not only going to get flack, you will get flack, but you also will get noticed. You also can make a difference. So Look, we're talking about her, right? Yeah. We're talking about her. So that's <laughs> that, right. That's something, right? And and it also I love this message that you're sharing that um a commitment to your big idea should be bigger than your commitment to yourself in some ways. And that the big idea will carry you along with it. But from a sustainability perspective, if you care so much about your big idea, that's going to be sustainable because you're going to want so badly to get it out there and you're willing to speak truth about it. Whereas if it's only about you, you're going to flitter from one thing to the next, you know, hoping to hit something and probably never get anywhere. Yeah, that's that's really important because I think a lot of times people shy away from uh, putting putting themselves in the spotlight or even being perceived to put themselves in the spotlight because they uh, they they have a script running in their head that says, oh, it's too self-aggrandizing, it's too narcissistic. We shouldn't you know we shouldn't be uh, you know sticking our our head out and and talking about things. But the truth is. If if it's about the idea, um, it's it's almost a, a a duty you have to the idea. If you are an entrepreneur running a business and you want it to get known, if you are a social change agent and you want to promote a different uh, way of looking at social policy around homelessness, if you are a professor doing research, if you are an author who's written a book, you know any of these things. If you are an employee that that really wants to make a change um, in in organizational policies. You need to be willing to take a risk so that your idea has a chance to be heard. 
And I think people respect that also. If they if there's if people begin to smell that you're just out there for self-promotion, they are going to turn away. But if they feel like there's something bigger than you that you're advocating for, I think that's very respectable and it's very attractive to a lot of people. Yes, ab- absolutely. So, um you have great ideas for coming up with great ideas. And, and uh, you know, one thing I was sort of writing about as I was reading your book is, you know, in some ways, the big idea of this book is the big idea, right, is coming up with big ideas. And uh, I'm wondering what you found in terms of the role of personality in creating that big idea that, you know, I think some people think about the world around them with curiosity, and they're, they're, commitment and engagement. They're engaged deeply with ideas. They love ideas. I think you love ideas. I love ideas. I mean, I I just love ideas, right? I love thinking about ideas. I love hearing new ideas. I love reading about them. And other people, you know, are sort of more satisfied to go through their days and, and, or they're fascinated with other things, but not necessarily the world of ideas. And I'm wondering, you know, is there an archetype? Is there a a kind of personality type that is well-suited to creating standout ideas and others where they might work really hard at it, but may not ever reach that standout idea? Yeah, I think, I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the first, uh, the first gate that people have to pass through is just sheer interest in, uh, in developing ideas. Uh, you know, is, is it something that is exciting to you? Is it appealing to make to make a bigger contribution to to get known for your ideas. Um, for some people, it just doesn't appeal, and if it doesn't, that's fine. But especially the people that I wanted to reach with this book are people who would like to uh, to make a difference, would like to share their ideas, but they are either worried that their idea isn't good enough or, you know, oh, you know, I have an idea, but, but everybody else has the same idea or, you know, gosh, why would anyone listen to me? If you're that kind of person and you are dealing with those voices, I wanted to try to create uh, a guide so that you you listen and realize because I heard this again and again in talking to these people who are now regarded as top, top experts. It is not that there is a lightning bolt and this magic idea happens. It is that over time, through diving in, through doing the work, through uh, kind of muddling through iterations, their ideas come to them. They didn't start out as geniuses. They started out as regular, confused people with questions like you and me. And it it was by engaging over time that they came to the ideas. And so um, for anyone who wants to make a contribution but just isn't sure how or they're not sure if they if they can, the answer is yes, you can. And uh, and that's who I wrote Stand Out for. And if you have the interest, then that's something that you'll end up pursuing and being able to do. Absolutely. So uh, the the two sides of this book, part one and part two, were interesting to me because I, you know, the part one is about developing your standout idea. And a lot of the examples of people who were in there, I knew their names. And And part two was about kind of what you can do to develop a following. And a lot of those people, I didn't really know their names as much, but they've developed big followings. And what I'm wondering about is if you've got a big idea, like you look at a Gladwell and and you go, you know, I don't know, does he need to develop a following or is the sheer brilliance of his writing enough to develop a following? Meaning, you know, are the people who have to develop, who have to work hard to develop this following 
and I would put myself in this category, you know, like I, you know, like I have to be sort of aware of that because I'm not Gladwell. Um, do, do we have to do stuff? And is there a formula for the people who, you know, write a breakout book or a breakout idea? And they haven't done all of this work to develop kind of a community and a following and a network and all of that. So, you know, with, with Malcolm Gladwell, he's an interesting example because what we'll ask, what permitted him to be able to write the tipping point? To begin with, and the answer is that he wrote an article uh, for the New Yorker. It became really popular, and he was able to adapt it and turn it into this full-length book, *The Tipping Point*, which just went insane. So it's absolutely true. He did not cultivate, uh, you, you know, social media following. Social media didn't exist in 2000. Um, he was uh, was not necessarily a household name at the time, but. He had social proof and institutional affiliations in spades. And so that's still something that's valuable. And if you, if you have that, if you can work it, by all means, you know, you blog, you know, I blog for the Harvard Business Review, you blog for the Harvard Business Review. Great. Let's do it. Let's, let's use that. Um, but I think it's especially salient for people out there who are still developing or they don't necessarily, uh, have an institutional affiliation. In the past, the gates would have just been closed to them. You know, well, you don't you don't write for HBR or The New Yorker. Well, sorry, you can't get a book deal. But these days, there is a lot more egalitarian opportunity because you don't have to have that affiliation if you, on your own, have been able to build a large social media following or a following for your podcast or your blog or whatever. You can you can create an alternative route by which you can can access that platform and convince a publisher to take a chance on you or to convince a TV producer to make a TV show about you. So I think it's kind of a broadening of opportunities. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so I was talking with a client of ours who's the head of a licensing, the CEO of a licensing company. So it's their job to um, find licenses that are going to hit big, you know, cartoons or something that's going to like really hit big. They want to find the next Dilbert. They want to find, you know, the next Snoopy. And I asked him, like, what are the criteria? What does he look for? And how does he know a hit when he sees it? How does he know something that's going to be viral? And it's his job to do this. And his answer was, it's like throwing spaghetti on a wall and hoping something sticks. Like you actually it's unpredictable. Like you don't know what's going to be. And I'm wondering, that was his view. I'm wondering your view. When you look at all these standout ideas, like, can you manufacture a viral hit? Do you know what to do? Or do you have a sense? I mean, if we follow the rules and standout, will that bring us to a viral hit? Do, do, what, what's, what's going on with something that takes off? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, in The New Yorker, I'm not sure if it's by Malcolm Gladwell, but one of his colleagues at The New Yorker actually wrote a really interesting piece uh, within the last year or so about uh, a company that actually specializes in at least attempting to predict based on algorithms which pop songs are going to go viral uh, based on, you know, all, all of the different traits, you know, the sort of big data crunching of what makes a monster hit. Uh, so to a certain extent, uh, at least at least when it comes to pop music, they have uh, been able to uh, begin to to develop patterns for that. But when it comes to videos or things like that, I mean, it it is at least at this point um, fairly impossible to uh, to determine. I mean, you you can uh, you can say, well, you know, they all have these these characteristics, but um, but you know, they they arouse strong emotions, or they have kittens, or <laughs> whatever. <Right>. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, it it is a real challenge. And so ultimately, what I suggest 
is that um, if you are, uh, for instance, somebody who is a bit of a renaissance person and you're interested in a lot of different things and you're you're not sure, you know, which one you want to pursue, um, I, I think that one of the best things that you can do is essentially place a lot of small bets to try to see what resonates and uh, and go with the momentum of the crowd. I mean, if, if you'd be happy doing, you know, 10 different things, well, don't just guess randomly. Place a bet check it out and see what people are responding to. And so my version of this, in fact, uh, which kind of kicked off my professional career, is that I uh, you know, started blogging in 2010 for HBR. And one of my first posts that I wrote, uh, you know, among, among many that I've now done, was called How to Reinvent Your Personal Brand. And that became a popular post. And in fact, it was popular enough that they asked me to turn it into a magazine piece for HBR. And when the magazine piece came out, I had multiple literary agents come to me and say, oh, this is interesting. You know, have you thought about turning it into a book? And I was able to, uh, I picked one of the agents, I wrote a proposal and was able to sell that to HBR and it became my first book, Reinventing You. Um, that that was something that, that literally was sort of incubated from 700 word blog post to 2,500 word uh, magazine article to, you know, 50, 60,000 word book. And uh, it was you know, writing that 700 words was not a huge investment. Um, I write many 700 word blog posts, but that was the one that the, the wind was at its back. You know, and 18 minutes was the same thing. When I put 18 minutes out, it started out as a blog post. It was a really successful blog post. It's actually, it, it brings me to something that, it reminds me of something that I, I've, I've written about and, and spoken about, which is this idea that the world rewards productivity, not perfection. And, and like what you're saying seems to reinforce that, which is put a lot of stuff out there. Keep putting stuff out there. Put stuff out there and put it and put it and put it. And notice what sticks in some ways. Like notice what people congregate around. And that becomes, in effect, you know, market research. If we try too much for perfection, we'll put one thing out a year. And the chance of that one hitting is much less than if we put, you know, 200 things out a year and, and one of them strikes a chord. I, I think it's really true. I mean, I think sometimes people um, draw this this sharp distinction. You know, oh, are you saying you know create a lot of stuff? Does that does that mean you don't care about quality? And you know, of, of course not. It needs to be good enough. But there's a very wide difference between good enough and perfect. Uh, and uh, and I, I think that a lot of people get hung up on it. Right, Dory Clark. Thank you so much for joining us. Will you just tell people how to get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you? Thank you, Peter. Absolutely. Um, if folks are interested in learning more and also if they would like to download my free 42-page standout workbook, which is adapted from standout and walks you step-by-step -step through developing your own breakthrough idea and building a following around it, you can do that on my website, which is doryclark.com. It's D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com. Thank you so much, Dory Clark, a friend of mine who wrote Standout, How to Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It. Dory, you have helped me connect with people and you've helped me kind of understand the importance of connecting people. So I'm really appreciative of that. You teach me. I'm so happy that you were here to be able to teach listeners and to, to be in this conversation with me. So thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, 
and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.